So let me just uh, tell you what I've been doing lately. I've been, uh, you know, I've been preaching for, gosh, 38 years now. And I've really, the Lord's really challenged me the last year. I've changed my style of ministry. Uh, I love all kinds of preaching. But what I do now is I just preach through the Bible. And I've been preaching through the book of Acts for the last uh, uh, eight months. And uh, I just kind of like just preaching through Scripture because I've done so many sermons over the years and with topical preaching and this series. And I love all of that. And my church is very modern. But I've found that I've, I've, I've missed a lot of uh, themes. I've skipped a lot of things because... Uh, topical preaching gives you the ability to kind of duck a lot of things. So I just go chapter by chapter, and it makes me talk about stuff sometimes I don't want to talk about and that we need to hear. So anyhow, this is, a, this is one of the messages I did recently out of Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite uh, verses in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. And I'm going to read you the story, and then we're going to talk about this, this uh, passage, what it means, and then what it means to you, to help you in your Christian life. People are always saying, you know, you know we need to get the Bible back in school. You know, we don't have the Bible in the school anymore. Well, I'm on a campaign to get the Bible back in church because we're not using much scripture in our sermons and we're not talking much about scripture. So I have a passion. It's something like 25% of Americans think that Jonah Ark was Noah's wife, you know? Uh, People don't know the Bible. People in the church don't know the Bible. People in the street don't know the Bible. So I'm trying to do a better job with that with my church. So anyhow, we're going to read a text, and then we're going to talk about it and see how it works for us. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 13 through 34. Great story in the book of Acts. This is in Paul's second missionary journey. He had three missionary journeys, and this was in his second missionary journey. And uh, he went to all these different cities. And uh, he started in Philippi. And if you think about, you know, a rock concert, a rock uh, group doing a a concert series, maybe they sell T-shirts that says, you know, Aerosmith in this city, that city, that city. Uh, You think about Paul, if he had a T-shirt, it would be uh, taking Jesus to Pagan Cities tour. So just think about this. When Paul went to these cities, there were no Christians in these cities. Zero Christians. When he went into Philippi, uh, and which in Macedonia, when he went to that city, there was nobody that knew Jesus in that city. When he went to, uh, when he went to Thessalonica uh, in, in Greece, there were no Christians in that city when he went there. When he went to Berea, which was another stop on that, taking Jesus to the pagan tour, there were no Christians in that city. When he went to Corinth, there were no Christians there. And think about the, the incredible revolution that this one man created because he met Jesus, he saw Jesus, and because he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life, what happened to him was he was, in, it was infected with telling other people about Jesus. So he's doing really good on this missionary tour. Uh, goes to Philippi. Uh, the first woman in Europe that becomes a Christian is a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She gets saved. She finds Jesus. And when she finds the Lord, her family finds the Lord, and Paul causes all kinds of trouble in the city of Philippi, and they beat him and they throw him in jail. And he gets out of jail, and then he goes to Thessalonica, and he's preaching in Thessalonica in the synagogues, which he always did. He always went to the synagogue first because there were some God-fearing people there. And he took the Old Testament, which they didn't call it the Old Testament then, they called it the Hebrew Bible. They took the Hebrew Bible, he took the Hebrew Bible, and he showed where the Hebrew Bible revealed that Jesus was coming. And so he preached out the Hebrew Bible. And then the Jewish people in the synagogue would get mad at him. They would throw him out of the synagogue. And so in Thessalonica, they get so mad at him, they get 
a, a group of thugs together to try to beat Paul up, and he leaves town, and he goes to a little place called Berea, and he goes to Berea, and he's preaching the word of the Lord there, and then the Bible says that, that the people from Thessalonica that didn't like him followed him to Berea, and they try to beat him up in Berea, and so his friends take him to Athens. Let me ask you here, how many, how, has anybody here in this room ever been to Athens, Greece? Anybody been to Athens, Greece? One of the most beautiful cities in the world. I've been to Athens, Greece about um, three times. Incredible, incredible place. He goes to Athens, and let's just think about this. Every city that Paul goes to he has incredible success. Every city he goes to, uh, church, uh, goes to Philippi, he plants a church, writes a letter to them. He goes to Thessalonica, plants a church, and sends a letter to them, a couple letters to them, actually. He goes to Berea. He didn't send them the letter. They were pretty good behaving people, so he didn't have to mess with them too much. They just let them serve the Lord. And, uh, but then he goes to Athens, and he doesn't plant a church in Athens. And there's no letter in our New Testament, the letter to Athens, because he had a really hard time there. But he preached the gospel to a culture that was hardened against the gospel. And they had all these questions about Jesus. And they didn't know if Jesus was real or not. They didn't know that the Bible was real. In the world that I live in, the Northeast, and I know many of you in this world that we're living in here, there's a lot of people, they just don't believe the Bible anymore, and they're very secular in their thinking. They have all these questions. All these millennials are wondering if God is real. And so when Paul goes to Athens, he preaches to a culture that has all these doubts about God. And that's why I love this passage, because he's preaching to people that just don't assume that this is true, uh, and they kind of doubt it, and so he's really preaching in a very, very hard environment. So let me give you, a, let me read a little bit to you here from this text here. Acts 17, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowns and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, by, uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day to those who had happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. We'll stop there. Now, he goes to... Uh, he goes to uh, Athens, and you've read a, we heard a little bit of the story about how the people resisted him. They said, what does this babbler want to say? The word babbler there is it's, it's, it's the Greek word that means a, uh, a bird that picks up a seed. And basically, they're saying, what is this, this little crazy guy? He's picked up a crazy idea. And so they're making fun of him, and they don't, they don't respect Paul. And, and we're living in a culture where people don't respect the church, they don't respect the Bible. And so that's the world that Paul was living in, and we're living in the same type of world that he was living in. But what I think is interesting about that is when Paul got to Athens, he's, he's, he's been you know, beat up, he's been chased out of all these cities, and, and he begins ministering right away. And here's what I think. If I had been Paul, 
and I was in Athens by myself, I think I would have taken a little time to have some me time. How many here, you need some me time every once in a while? You like people, you love your family, you love your kids, you love your grandkids, you love your friends, but sometimes you just like to be alone. How many like that? How many need a little solitude? How many know that solitude is wonderful? You know, you know, we had the grandkids over to Sam and, and, and Yvette's yesterday. We had a wonderful time and all that. And, you know, and we have our grandkids at our house sometimes. It's wonderful. But, you know, sometimes it's just wonderful to see them go home, isn't it? You know, like the guy that said, I've seen the lights of Paris. I've seen the lights of Rome. But there's nothing like the tailgates of my kids taking my grandkids home, you know? <laughs> so every once in a while, I need some solitude. I've got a basketball goal in my driveway, and so I'll, I'll go out there all by myself, and I'll, I'll get my basketball, and I'll just, like, shoot some hoops. I've got a trail bike that I like to ride on the trails all by myself, and I love people, and I love that, but sometimes I need some solitude, and I need some me time. Heard about the mother. We had Mother's Day not too long ago. Heard about the mother that she was, uh, uh, you know, she, her, her husband asked her on Mother's Day, would you like for uh, me and the kids to take you out for dinner this evening? And she said, well, why don't you take the kids out to dinner and I'll stay here. <laughs> and I'll get a bath and I'll have an hour where I don't have to zip anybody's coat up or anything. But Paul could have used some me time, but he didn't. He wasn't there as a sightseer. He was there as a soul winner. He was there in Athens for a purpose. And so the Bible says that when he saw the city was full of idols, he was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him. And the word in the Greek means to be greatly disturbed inside. And it's in the imperfect tense. So that means he continued to be upset about what he saw. How many know that you get upset by what you care about? Say that with me. I get upset by things... I really care about. One more time. I get upset by things I really care about. For me, it happened, you know, I'm really funny about my yard. I like my yard to be like nice and uh, really nice. I like really good grass. I hired this company to make my grass look good and all that. And I've got these neighbors that live next to me, and I'm in Texas, so I can talk about my neighbors, and here goes, you know. So I got these neighbors that live next door to me, and they're wonderful people. They're young people, you know, and all that. I think that's incredible. And they have these parties, these parties. And, you know, and we're not, we're not against the parties. No care night. We drink our jar tall and go to bed at 930. But anyhow, they're there having their parties. And that's fine. I think it's incredible to have these parties. But what happens is they have so many people at their parties. They park into the, their driveway and they're everywhere. And they can't get out and they leave at different times. And so they, they drive through my yard. And they leave big ruts in my nicely manicured lawn. And it, you know, I have to tell you, it gets me upset. It gets me upset. And I know I'm supposed to go over there. And so I went over there and shared Jesus with them one time about that. And uh, I said, listen, I'm all about the party. The party's fine with me. I mean, I love the party. I think it's wonderful. But can you please ask your friends not to drive through my yard? Because you get upset about things you care about when they're threatened. That's how it works. And Paul is upset about what he sees because he cares about this. I remember when uh, 
when my son uh, Joel, we have two sons, Timothy uh, and Joel. Uh, Tim's about uh, 38 now, I think, and Joel was 36 and a half and 37, something like that. And uh, when Joel was nine years old, our youngest son, uh, in the spring of the year, something happened to him. We don't know what it was. To this day, we don't know what it was. He started having real serious abdominal pain. And the pain was severe. I mean, uh, and he literally would walk around sort of hunched over, kind of moaning. And we took him to the doctor, and the doctors did all these tests on him. Their theory was that he had a virus in his lymph node glands, and, and he just wasn't getting any better. And he would literally uh, be in bed at night at sleep, and you could hear him moaning in his sleep. And this little boy, you know, his whole life, you know, he was a baseball kid and he loved to climb trees. And all of a sudden, his, his life tooled down because he was in all this pain. And he literally walked around all the time, kind of bent over, you know, moaning. And, uh, you know, it was just, they did exploratory surgery on him, trying to figure out what was wrong. But here's what I remember about that season uh, from, from about um, May in the spring when he was nine years old to about October, that my wife Karen, his mom, Every night when he would go to bed, she would sit at his uh, bed, sit on the floor by his bed, and she would pray for him. She wouldn't pray for him for 20 minutes. She didn't pray for him for half an hour, but she would spend hours there praying for Joel, for the Lord to heal Joel. And she was deeply upset because something that she loved dearly was being threatened. And she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed. And I remember we had the exploratory surgery. They couldn't figure out what's wrong with him. And uh, after the surgery, we said to Joel, we said, Joel, you know, we were supposed to go to Disney World that year. And we said, do you still want to go to Disney World? And he said, yeah, let's still go to Disney World. And we had a wheelchair, and we're pushing him around at Disney World, which was really cool because we got in the front of the line and everything. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, so that was pretty cool. But then sometime in the fall, my dad, who's a pastor, my dad began to fast and pray for Joel. And then sometime in the month of October, it wasn't instantaneous, but just it just faded away and he got better. So when you, when, you are, when you care about something and that which you care about is threatened, you get upset. And it says Paul's spirit was provoked within him. The other thing about what you care about determines what you see. Say it with me. What you care about determines what you see. You know, when you, uh, when you care about, like when you have your kids and they, they play Little League. If you ever had your kids play Little League and uh, they're playing baseball and there's nine kids on the field. How many know that when there's nine kids on the field and you're watching your kid play baseball, you're looking at one kid? You're looking at your kid out there, and he's in center field, and he's not even facing the right way. He's looking at the cars go by, and you're, you're rooting for him, but you're, you're zeroed in on that one kid because you care about that one kid. What you care about determines what you see. If, the, if, a, if a business guy cares about development and making money, he will drive by, and he'll see a, he'll, he'll see a lot, or he'll see a piece of land, and he can see... The opportunity there, because what you care about determines what you see. What, what really gets me is when I see a young couple, I'll maybe be at the mall or I'll be somewhere and I'll see a young couple and they're, they're pushing uh, you know, one little kid in a stroller and they got another little kid you know, under their arms and they got another kid that's grabbing at their legs and they got bags under their eyes. They haven't slept in, in months. you know. And I look at that little family and when I see those in Delaware and I see them wherever I am, 
My, my first thought is, I wonder if that young millennial couple, if they're going to church, if they got their kids in some great children's program like at New Covenant, so those kids are being discipled and being prepared for the next, as, as leaders of the next generation. That's what I see. When I see a building around uh, where I live, I'm riding around, we want to plant more churches, and I ride by uh, you know, a building, I see, I see, whoa, that would be a great church. That would be a great church. We have a, a wonderful church uh, that's in Rehoboth, Delaware, near the beach, uh, where, where it was our first church plant, and we're very excited about that. It's, it's actually only for church plant now, you know, so we have that church. I planted about six or seven churches by accident, but this is the church we really plan to plant. And uh, we're, we're, we're actually, we, we, it's a very prosperous community, and I'm pr- we, we see these buildings, and, and we're actually, you know, we, we don't mean these businesses no harm, but we're praying bankruptcy so we can get their building. <laughs> so say this with me, what you, see what you see comes from what you care about. Now, your pastor, Sammy, uh, by the way, nobody calls him Pastor Sam in Delaware. Everybody calls him Sammy. He comes to Delaware. Nobody knows him as Sam. He's, he's, you're Pastor Sam here. So what everybody calls you? Everybody, he's, they call him Sammy in Delaware. We call him Sammy. So anyhow, uh, he used to bring me up here. when I, I've been coming here eight years or so, and Sammy would bring me up here uh, on this hill and show me where. When that's when you all met in that little rental place down there. And he'd bring me up here and look at this place. And, and, and he would say, boy, we're going to have this building here, and this is going to happen, and we're going to do this over there. And I'm thinking, this is absolutely nuts. And, and Karen, I would say to Karen, you know, he's up there by that strip club again. He's trying to build a church up there. <laughs> the man has lost his mind. I, I'm like, what the world is wrong with this man? He showed me this building. He was all excited about it. His tail was wagging. I'm like, wow, I'm telling you. I mean, Lord, give him wisdom because he's not got a whole lot right now, you know. You know what? He saw, he saw what he cared about. And he cares about this city. He cares about this community. And he saw the opportunity in this place and his vision that God gave him has put you right where you are. And that's why you've got all this energy and all these people finding the Lord and your church is growing because a man let God open his eyes to see what God really cared about. Amen. Let's give that, let's celebrate that. Amen. But Paul saw the city was full of idols. And his spirit was deeply provoked within him. He was upset. And he saw the condition of the city because he saw what he cared about. Now, he began to preach his message, and I'm not going to uh, take a lot of time on this message, but he began to preach this message, and it's interesting. This is, the only, this is the only sermon in the New Testament by either Peter or Paul that Paul does not use a single scripture. This sermon has no scripture in it because he's talking to a secular crowd. He's talking to people that don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the Hebrew Bible. So in, instead of quoting scripture, he quotes two Greek poets. That's why it's important that we're educated, we understand the culture we live in. Uh, so many times I see Christian people that want to change the world. The only culture they know about is the Christian culture. The only books they ever read are Christian books. The only people they ever talk to are other Christians. 
The only philosophies they ever uh, embrace are philosophies that agree with their philosophy. The only news network they ever watch is a certain conservative news network. You know, I think we need to understand the culture. You cannot win a culture without with being ignorant of that culture. And let me tell you, let me, I mean, I'm going home tomorrow, so I'll just say it. The worst people in the world for that is my inheritance. My inheritance is Pentecostal charismatic background. And we are the worst of being uneducated about the culture we live in. And if we want to change this world, we need to understand the people we're talking to. So I've spent, you know, if you're a young person here and you're thinking about being a preacher or a pastor, I have spent uh, 20, 25 years of my life getting educated so I can understand the world that I'm communicating to because I'm not communicating to the people that read Charisma magazine. I'm communicating to the people that don't believe the Bible anymore, and I want to be able to persuade them with insight that can make them understand what the kingdom of God is all about. So anyhow, that went over just like I thought it would. Anyhow, there it is right there. But he began to preach, and he preached, he preached, first of all, his first point was to nature itself, and the greatest preacher in the world is not Sammy Fisher or Pastor Chris or surely not me. The greatest preacher in the world is nature, and he begins to appeal to nature, and he says that God made the world, the God who made the world, the God who made the world. Now, here's what's important. He's in Greece, and when he's in Greece, here's what you need to know. The Greeks believe that the, that, the, that the universe was eternal. They don't believe that the universe had a beginning. Aristotle believed that, that matter and the universe just always was. And so when uh, Paul is preaching, he said, that's wrong. Because there was a God who made the world that we live in. And God made human beings. And God created human beings. And then he said, he said God created people and he placed them where they're supposed to live. And, and as he appeals to nature, he, he says, in fact, it says, he writes this later in the book of Romans. He says in the book of Romans that, the, that, 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 that everybody has seen the works of nature and the invisible attributes of God are revealed by nature. I was going across a bridge not too far from where I lived the other day. It was sunset there, and I think I have a picture of a beautiful sunset over the Ocean City Bay. Do I have that picture or not? Do I, maybe don't. I don't have that. So anyhow, imagine a beautiful sunset right now. And uh, you guys have got some beautiful places here, incredibly beautiful. But it says, anyhow, it says that there, God, God, he spoke to nature, and he, he appealed to that. And then he said this. He said that, that people have an instinctive desire to reach out for something. That people have an instinctive desire to reach out for God. He said, God has put it in our hearts to reach out and seek Him, each of us to seek Him. The book of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in men's hearts. And so there's this internal hunger for God to come into a person's life when they seek the Lord. A few weeks ago, I I got a text uh, from, my e- uh, from my Facebook account. And I got this text, and it was from a guy named Charles, and he said, uh, the text was, I went to school with you, high school with you, would you please call me as soon as you can? And it was a Saturday morning, so I was working on my final manuscript for preaching on Sunday, and so I didn't call him back. I waited until lunchtime, and before lunchtime got, I got there, I got another text from him. So would you please call me? So I had to go to Lowe's to pick up some things, and so I go to Lowe's, 
And when I go to uh, Lowe's, I'm, uh, the parking lot's parked, uh, packed, so I just sat in my truck, and I called this guy named Charles. And he said, he told me his full name. He said, do you remember me? We graduated together from the, in the class of 1976. And to be honest, I didn't know him. I could not remember him. He said, I was the salutatorian of our class. I was number two in the class. He said, Barbara Gandrick was number one. I was number two. And then I said, well, that's why I don't know you, because I was on the other end of the class there, you know. <laughs> He said, have you got a few minutes to talk? He said, I got this problem in this relationship I'm having, and things aren't going good. And, 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 and then he said, he said, you know what? My mom and dad raised me. Uh, they said to me, and my mom particularly, she said, that you're not going to be happy by going to Sunday school. You're not going to be happy by praying. You're only going to be happy by getting good grades and being successful in life, so you don't want to waste your time in church. And he said, they used to make fun of preachers on TV, and uh, Charles said, that was the environment I was raised in. And he said, I have to tell you, I got good grades, I got full scholarships, I've been very successful, but I'm not happy. And he said, what do you think of the Mormons? Just threw that in there. I said, whoa, well, we're just, we're talking about everything, aren't we? I said, well, he said, the Mormons are really nice to me. I said, you know, Mormons are, I'll tell you what, they're very good people. They're very honest people. They're hardworking people. And they're part of the American culture. The, the whole story of Mormonism is wrapped into American history. And so they're like the, they're only real American religion. And um, I said, but the only problem with the Mormons is, is the Mormons have downgraded Jesus to an angel. I said, the Mormons, you don't believe in the same Jesus that evangelical people that believe the Bible do. And so I said, there's a, a problem with that. And he said, oh, that doesn't sound good. I said, well, it's not good, really. I said, they're good people, but you, you don't want to downgrade Jesus. Jesus is, is, is the son, the eternal son of God. And he said, well, how can I find a church? And I told him about, well, you know, here's some ways you can find a church. He lived in Gaithersburg, Maryland, quite a ways from where I live. And I said, look for the word community sometimes in the church name. That's a good sign that maybe it's a Bible teaching church or whatever. And uh, I, said, uh, I said, you want me to pray for you about finding a church? And so I, I, he said, yeah. So I started praying for him. I'm sitting in Lowe's parking lot with my phone, and I'm praying for this Charles, the salutatorian of our class, and I'm praying for him, for the Lord to help him find a church, and for the Lord to minister to him, help him with his broken relationship. I'm praying with him about all that. And uh, as I'm going through that prayer with Charles, all of a sudden the Lord just tapped me on the shoulder and said, don't pray for him to find a church. He wants to find me right now. So I got done praying. I said, Charles, would you like to find Jesus right now? And I'm telling you what, he said, yes, I would. And I didn't even get started with the sinner's prayer. He started praying, asking Jesus to come into his life. He said, Lord, please come into my life. I need you. I'm empty and all that. And he just was crying out the Lord, just like Paul said. He was crying out the Lord. And he got a little tangled up in his prayer, so I helped him finish his prayer out there. And he found the Lord. You know, the Bible says, as Paul was preaching, he said, every, every man is put inside of every man. He's talking to those Athenians that don't believe the Bible. And he said, every man, every woman, every child was created for a relationship with God, to have a, a relationship, an authentic relationship with the Lord. And he preached to them. And then, I don't have but a few minutes here, but let me, he, he went to something that I seldom hear anybody teach on anymore. And it says that God has fixed a day that all men will be judged. And he began to talk about the judgment 
And Paul often in his preaching talked about a day of judgment where human beings would stand before a holy God, that we've offended a holy God, that we're just, Jesus is like the song of our generation, Jesus is just okay with me. That's not what theology teaches. We're not in right relationship with God because we've sinned against the perfect, eternal, holy God of the universe. And he said there's a day of judgment coming. And he preached on that. My son Tim, who's the Wild child of our family, respectively. I mean, he's a, yeah, he's a little, he always pushes the envelope. The other day, he was with his brother, and, our, and their families were at his beach house, and they wanted to go check the waves out because they're surfers. And so uh, they got in their car, and they loaded all the grandkids and their wives and everybody in Tim's car, and they come out to Route 1, which runs parallel to the beach there where, where we live at. And they had to go right in order to get the intersection turn around to go back to the, the beach he wanted to go to. But there's a little... There's a little bypass further down. Tim decided nobody was coming. He would go that way, the wrong way on the highway. And, um, and he told his brother before he did it, I, I do this all the time, and, I, and I've, never, I've never gotten called. Well, you know, as soon as you say that, you're going to get arrested. So anyhow, he, <clears throat> as soon as he went down that way, the cops pulled him over. They were there behind a bush somewhere, and they pulled him over. And, and they said, uh, I guess you know why I stopped it, because you're going the wrong way. And, and Joel's sitting in the back seat. Joel is our rule follower. He does everything right. And he said, Dad, I've, I've been stopped two times in 20 years, and I got a ticket both times. And he said, do you know that Tim got off? They didn't give him a ticket because he's so charming and so interesting. And he said, I'm sitting back there thinking, they ought to put him in jail. He should go to jail for this. <laughs> and they let him off. But you know what? God's not like that cop. God is not like that cop. He doesn't let us off for our sins. When I was coming down here, I had my tennis bag. I forgot my Bible, but I had my tennis bag, and I was there, and I, was, I, was, I had my tennis bag, and I was going through the, uh, the, the, the TSA people there at the Salisbury Airport, and, and I had everything packed, and I had, I had just bought like a $20 bottle of bullfrog uh, sunblock. It's really the best sunblock you can buy. And it was five ounces and I forgot it was in there and I paid like $20 for this. And uh, this inspector, she found it in my bag and she pulled it out. <laughs> Do you see this, sir? Oh, I, saw, I was like right away, oh no, I can't believe it. I just paid 20 bucks for that. You know, I use it when I play tennis. And, uh, and I know you can only have three ounces. And I said to her, can you pour two ounces out? Can you just pour two ounces out? No way, sir. Well, she took that and, you know, I, she, anyhow. So we are going to take a collection up for a bullfrog uh, sunscreen here at the end. <laughs> but that's what God's like. God, if we sin against the holy God, that sin has consequences and that sin has to be paid for. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, it says when you say the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sin is a debt that must be paid for. 
And the judgment of God, I was talking to our church in Rehoboth a, a couple weeks ago. It's all millennials, and I love millennials, great thinkers. And millennials think that you're going to go to heaven. Everybody's going to go to heaven because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's how you're going to get to heaven. You're not going to get to heaven because Jesus loves you. You're going to get to heaven because Jesus loves everybody, and everybody's not going to heaven. You're going to heaven because Jesus has satisfied the wrath and the judgment of God, and we stand before a holy God because Jesus paid the debt for us. That's the, that's the gospel. Not that God loves everybody and you try your best. That is heresy. The gospel is, is that there is a sin debt that has to be paid and Jesus paid it. So I was watching, uh, I was watching TV a while back and I saw right around, it was in the month of May, that I saw this, this guy that was given a commencement speech down in Atlanta, Georgia, and his name is Robert, uh, uh, Robert S. Smith. And he's the wealthiest uh, African-American in America. Here's a picture of him. He's given his commencement speech. I believe you got a picture of him. And uh, he's more wealthy than, than Oprah. He's more wealthy than anybody. Uh, he has an incredible... Uh, there it is. He's given his commencement speech. And uh, he's, uh, he, he actually creates... He, create, he buys up these, these high-tech companies... And he sells these high-tech companies, and he's worth, uh, Forbes magazine says he's worth $5 billion. And as I mentioned, he's the wealthiest African-American in America. And he's given his commencement speech at uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta. And they've given him an honorary doctorate. And while he's given his commencement speech, he says, in the middle of his commencement speech, he says, I'm going to pay the student debts of everybody in this class. How many wish you'd gone to Morehouse College? <laughs> How much is that worth? $40 million. And here's a reaction of the students. <sighs> and I think that every time the worship team comes on the stage and they begin to Lead us into worship. This should be our reaction. This should be our reaction. Because the Lord has paid our debt. I'm going to heaven because Jesus has been sent by the Father to pay the debt of Danny Tice. And every day I live, I could never be angry or unforgiving of somebody long-term because Jesus has forgiven me. And if he's forgiven me, it doesn't matter what you've done to me. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to live every day overflowing with gratitude.